are doing an abrupt about face here. Uh, what I'm about to say applies exclusively to the United States in its internal affairs. And in fact, the decline that I will uh, argue is occurring has nothing to do with the prognosis for America as a world power. Uh, it's independent of that, and I can see the United States continuing to expand as a, in its economic and military and diplomatic influence as well as uh, decline. Uh, that's irrelevant to what I'm about to say. <clears throat> the title of my paper, which is drawn from the book that will be on sale January 31st of next year, is an exceptional decline. <coughs> Excuse me. And the title refers to a decline in American exceptionalism. Now, American exceptionalism has been uh, defined in all sorts of ways, so I'd better specify what I'm talking about. I'm talking about America's civic culture. People in this room, most of you are old enough uh, to have lived in an era when people talked about the American way of life, not sarcastically, uh, but as just a taken for granted statement of the way that America was different. Uh, it was encapsulated perhaps as well as anywhere else uh, by Edward Banfield in uh, The Moral Basis of a Backward Society when he was describing in that book the uh, state of affairs in Montegrano, Italy, uh, which was governed by the uh, rule of, uh, of ensure the self-interest of the nuclear family and assume everybody else will do the same. And he was trying to contrast that. Uh, with the United States. And the device he chose was to take a newspaper, uh, one issue of a newspaper from St. George, Utah, which described, and he gave a whole roster of the things that went on in the community that week, whether it were PTA meetings or FHA uh, uh, outings or all of you who grew up in that era know the, the roster of things that went on, all sorts of community activities, fund drives, charitable activities, taken for granted that all of these things were going on in an ordinary week in an ordinary American community. Uh, exceptionalism in this regard, in terms of the civic culture, was also captured best, I think, uh, by Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address when he talked about the sum of good government, which is to protect people from each other and otherwise leave them free to their own pursuits of industry and improvement. The idea that people can be left alone to live their lives as they see fit and come together cooperatively to solve their problems, that's what American civic culture was, and that's what was unique about the United States because there was no other country in the world that had a civic culture like that. England being the closest, but England's class system meaning that the closest wasn't really all that close in many ways. They were quite distinct. The founders, as they set up the Constitution and the legacy that permitted this civic culture, were fully aware at the top of their brains that the laws were not sufficient to bring this about. Every single one of them very explicitly talked about the necessity of virtue in the people uh, if the Constitution were to work. People had to be self-governing, first of all, at the individual level. And they even had a fairly short list of the kinds of virtues that were required. Now, coming up with a, an, a canonical list is pretty tough because there were a variety of candidates, but there were four that I would settle upon that meet this test. 
would any of the founders have said the American project could work absent any of these four qualities? And the answer for all of the founders would have been no. And the four that I identified, two of them are uh, virtues uh, in themselves. One is honesty, American plain and simple honesty, as Jefferson referred to it. Uh, the, and the other of these was what they called industry. And I will use the more familiar modern term, industriousness. But industry encapsulated not just working hard, but seeking to get ahead, striving to become uh, an expert uh, in one's craft and so forth. Those two were virtues in themselves. The other two are institutions through which virtue is nourished. One of those is marriage, and the other of those was religion. I won't go into uh, a defense of the proposition that the founders all saw these four as being crucial. I will have just a quick remark about religiosity because uh, the founders themselves were largely either deist, openly deist, as in the case of Thomas Jefferson, or uh, were definitely suspect on the details of Christian doctrine, as in the case of George Washington, or were Unitarians like uh, Adams. But all of them agreed. They said you cannot have a free society in which religion is not the source of the self-governing code of conduct within the people. So you have these four, in the book originally I called them Republican virtues. And after about the third draft, I said to myself, if I leave these as the Republican virtues, I'm going to catch so much flack. <laughs> um, so I, I now refer to them as the founding virtues. Uh, I. I I, I, in the book, I use the founding virtues as a way of calibrating what's been happening uh, to the American exceptional civic culture in the last 50 years. Um, what I'm about to give as my thesis is subject to misunderstanding. The thesis is that over the last 50 years, America has seen the development of classes that are qualitatively different from anything that the country has known before. And that unless something happens to reverse this, the American project cannot survive uh, this kind of class system. This is not a prelude to a disquisition on growing in e uh, economic inequality. It is quite different from that. To make the case I uh, took all of the data that I gathered on this and put it in terms of two fictional neighborhoods named Belmont and Fishtown, uh, which are named after real neighborhoods. Belmont is, of course, the suburb of uh, Massachusetts, uh, Boston, Massachusetts, which I chose because it was the home of my co-author uh, on the bell curve, Richard J. Hernstein. It's an affluent suburb filled with professionals. And the way I define membership in Belmont in terms of my census and uh, current population survey databases is everybody who qualifies for Belmont has a college education and is in one of the professions or a managerial job or is married to such a person. That's Belmont. Fishtown is named after a community in the northeast uh, part of Philadelphia that has been a working class com uh, community since the uh, 1700s. To qualify for Fishtown, uh, you may have no more than a high school education and you must be working in a blue-collar job or a low-level white-collar job or be married to such a person and yourself not have any higher attainment than that. So those are my two groups and they have two other qualifications. One is that they're all ages 30 to 49 
to be in my database qualifying for those towns. The reason for that is the decade of the 20s is a decade of transition where a lot of people are still in school or getting started with their careers. The decade of the 50s, people are leaving the labor force because they're taking early retirement. If you're in your 30s and 40s, you're in the prime of life. Uh, the second qualification is they're all non-Latino white. The reason for that is very simple. Every time someone talks about the problems of a lower class in the United States, inside the audience's head is, well, what he's really talking about uh, are, are low-income blacks and Latinos, minorities, things like that. And that has distracted us from the degree to which the reference point itself is changing. So by limiting the analysis to non-Latino whites, basically I'm saying these are people for whom there are no excuses. These are people, if they are, if they are trending in certain directions, we've got a problem for which it's not going to help if we can overcome the legacy of slavery and it's not going to help if we can restrict immigration. These are problems that are, that are deep at the heart of what's going on in America. Parenthetically, I will say, guess what? When you expand the numbers to include all Americans, they look the same. And I do that in the next to the last chapter. But everything I'm about to say all refers to whites ages 30 to 49 years old. Okay, let's talk about the four founding virtues. 1960 versus 2010. Start with marriage, which I would say is the fault line <coughs> dividing American classes at this point. Uh, marriage, the foundation of society, the foundation of communities. You don't have marriage, you don't have all sorts of things that all of us understand from our own life experience. It's not single males who coach little league teams. It's not, it's not single women without children who, uh, who fund charity drives you know, or charity drives. The people who are uh, in the PTA uh, are overwhelmingly people in marriages. You go through the whole list of social capital and all the ways in which communities function, married couples are at the heart of it. Uh, a, a proposition which can be demonstrated statistically with no problem whatsoever. In 1960, among whites ages 30 to 49, in Belmont, 94% were married. In Fishtown, 87% were married. Was there a difference? Yeah. It was very, very small. You're looking at marriage as the norm, an overwhelming norm in both communities. Fast forward to 2010. Percentage of whites ages 30 to 49 married in Belmont, 83%. Down, still it's 83%, an overwhelming norm. In Fishtown, 48%. People ages 30 to 49, non-Latino whites. If you talk about males in Fishtown ages 30 to 49, you're looking at about more than a quarter of them have never been married. It is a fundamental change in a, in a fundamental institution that, as far as I know, is without parallel over such a comparatively short period of time. And it fundamentally alters the ability of Fishtown to function as a community. Industriousness, here I have to talk about males uh, because uh, the, the revolution in the expectations of what women will do in the labor force has been so profound over the last 50 years. But in uh, 1960 and 2010 alike, 
there is a kind of sense still in the culture that adult males should be working. Uh, that if you aren't, there's probably something wrong with you. Well, in 1960, among the uh, adult males in, uh, in Belmont, you had less than 1% who said they were physically disabled and unable to work. Um, in Fishtown, where people were doing much harder jobs and more dangerous jobs, you had only 2% of adult males who were physically disabled and said they were unable to work. Then we have 50 years in which there are unparalleled advances in all sorts of things which mean that being physically disabled in 1960 doesn't mean being physically disabled in 2010. We have all sorts of medical advances which just simply cure things that physically disabled in 1960. We have all sorts of uh, prostheses, whether they are for physical problems or for intellectual problems that make it possible for you to work. There are vastly more jobs in which, which used to be uh, heavy physical labor, such as digging ditches, which can now be done by sitting at the controls of, a, of, of one of the ditch diggers. So there is no way. It is simply impossible that the percentage of adult males who are physically unable to work in 2010 is larger than it was in 1960. In 2010, the percentage of Belmont males physically <coughs> unable to work, still less than 1%. In Fishtown, from 2% in 1960 to 10% in 2010. That has been accompanied also by increasing dropout of, from the labor force uh, by, uh, by males ages 30 to 49. We also know from getting inside the black box what is going on with a lot of these people because we have had lots of studies where people have gone out and explored qualitatively what's going on uh, with these men. Well, a lot of them are living off girlfriends. A lot of them are living off sisters. A lot of them are living off parents. Um, a lot of them are engaged in crime and just not in the labor force because they're doing that. We, we also know how they use their leisure time because there has been an increase in leisure time in Fishtown that has not occurred in Belmont. And the increased leisure time in, in Fishtown is being used sleeping and watching television. Uh, you have a real problem with declining industriousness. But this also re uh, reflects on the ability of communities to function as, com as communities in the ways that American civic culture is demanded. So that, for example, if you simply ask the question, taking it overall, what percentage of families in 1960 had somebody working 40 hours a week in the preceding week? Uh, in Belmont, that was 90% in 1960, 87% in 2010. Uh, in Fishtown, it was 81% in 1960, 53% in 2010. I won't go into detail and honesty, uh, except to say this. The incredible growth in crime from 1960 through into the 1990s was almost completely a Fishtown phenomenon. Uh, let's face it, Westchester did not experience a real crime spree <coughs> at any point during that time. Uh, all of that increase was focused uh, in Fishtown. That's where you had lots more crimes being committed, lots more people being sent to prison, lots more people bombed probation and parole. It has diminished uh, since the early 1990s. As crime has diminished, it is still orders of magnitude larger than it was in 1960. In terms of religiosity, 
could I just do with my notes? There they are. In terms of religiosity, you've seen a secularization across the board in the United States. That's, that's the bottom line in terms of changes there. But there is a result that surprised me and may surprise you as well. Secularization has been much more concentrated in Fishtown than in Belmont. Uh, for example, if you look at uh, the percentage of people who I will call de facto secular, either they tell the interviewer that they don't have any religion at all, or they say they have a religion but they haven't attended a worship service more than once in the last year. Those are de facto seculars. Uh, in Belmont, upper middle class America, that went from 27% in 1972, which is the first year we have good numbers for that, from 27% then to 42% in 2010, an increase. In Fishtown, it went from 35% in 1972 to 60%. Furthermore, if you look at those numbers, what you see is that if the, the religious core of a community, so those families that do attend ch church regularly um, is down to about a quarter or 30 to 20, 25 to 30% in Belmont, but that's still a good chunk of a town's population. That means that the, 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 the religious core is still a vital element in the community. You get down to 12%, which is the situation in Fishtown, and they are increasingly seen as oddballs. Why is this important? Besides the reason the founders gave that you really need religion as a basis for people to <laughs> govern themselves, if you go to Robert Putnam's book on social capital, uh, Bowling Alone, that famous book, he pointed out, and he has reiterated this in his more recent book, Saving Grace, of all the social capital, all the community activities that go on, formal and informal, about half of those are generated directly through religion. And in addition to those, a lot of the ones that are secular, the people who participate in them are overwhelmingly people who are also religiously so when you get that kind of, of reduction in religiosity, you are also getting a huge reduction in social capital. What I have tried to convey with these numbers about the growing new lower class is that you have had what used to be the working class in this country that now increasingly has, as a very large proportion of those communities, people who no longer engage in the basic institutions that Americans have always considered essential to the functioning of America's civic culture. And they now amount to a very large minority of the population and a growing minority. At the same time you've had this new lower class, you have also had a new upper class. Again, looking around the room, a lot of you went through the same kind of, uh, I was born in 1943, a lot of you can calibrate where you were somewhere in that, and, and, and I grew up in a period in which there was a, a vast change in the nature of the upper middle class in this country and the elites. One of the best ways to summarize it real quickly is for those of you who have seen Mad Men, if you're too young to remember the 1960s. And for those of you who do watch Mad Men, I hope some of you do in the audience, they have as, as one of its lead characters the creative director of an advertising agency in Manhattan, a major ma advertising agency. And they also have a lot of scenes set in his home which is presumably in a place like Westchester. Um, the creators of the show were very careful to be authentic. 
the home that Don Draper lives in is not a mansion. It is a, it is a small, modest place by in comparison with what you see today, <laughs> consisting of a small kitchen and a dining room and a living room on the first floor and a couple of bedrooms and a bathroom on the second floor. You know, again, most of you know what I'm talking about, a typical upper middle class home in 1960. And compare that to what you see if you go into high-end communities in the United States now. I can provide some numbers for this kind of thing. In terms of the percentage of people who have BAs and the, and the median income in some elite communities in the United States. Uh, let's say the Upper East Side of New York, for example. In 1960, the percentage of people on the Upper East Side of New York with bachelor's degrees, adults, we're talking 59th Street up to about 96th and from the park to the river, 23% of all people in that area had BAs, and the median family income was $55,000 in 2010 dollars. Want to imagine living on $55,000 a year on the Upper East Side? Uh, yeah, by uh, 19, 2000, by the 2000 census, percentage of BAs in the Upper East Side, 75%. Median family income, $183,000 more than triple. I also have numbers for the north uh, shore of Chicago, for Marin County, for uh, Beverly Hills and the rest of it. Overall, if you take a variety of elite neighborhoods in the United States in 1960, about a quarter of the people in them had BAs and the median income was about $80,000. Uh, today, about two-thirds of our people have BAs and the median income is about $163,000. What's important here is not the change in income. What's important is the change in culture. Because what has happened as you have had an increasingly homogeneous group of people in upper middle class neighborhoods, college educated, affluent, decreasing diversity, you have also had people growing up ignorant of most of the way that the rest of America lives. Some of you in this room probably have experienced this with your own children who you have raised in such neighborhoods, whereas you yourself grew up in Queens or you grew up in a small town. Uh, your parents were lower middle class, uh, working class. So yes, you may have gotten affluent and live on the Upper East Side or Central Park West, but you still bring with you a memory of what life in the rest of America is like your children are, have an increasingly hard time knowing anything about that because they've never experienced it because all the experience they've had with it was occasionally when they went to visit grandma and grandpa living in Queens or in the small town. If you are in the third generation, you don't even have that. You have never known anything except life in the bubble. And what I'm talking about here is not, again, an anecdotal phenomenon. It is an empirical one in which you have people with distinctive tastes and preferences culturally that have increasingly been enabled to live together in isolation from the rest of America and what you are looking at in what is oftentimes summarized as red states versus blue states isn't that at all. It is, and it's also not liberal versus conservative. It is an upper class culture which is divorced from and to a great degree ignorant of how the rest of America works. 
the reasons this is bad, in my view, is because it makes it impossible for this country to continue much longer as it has. We are increasingly looking like Europe, not just in the imposition of a social welfare state, we are looking increasingly like Europe in terms of classes of society that don't talk to each other. That is not what America's civic culture has been all about. That's not what American exceptionalism was all about. I have to conclude this very brief summary of much more complex arguments without offering you solutions. I have never been good at solutions uh, throughout my career, and, and I'm no better now than I used to be. I think it is a problem that needs to be brought to our attention. Because if it is going to be solved, it is only going to be solved uh, by people recognizing what it is they have loved about America and understanding that we need to do something to preserve it. 